Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is 6-30-2021, and we're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time we have together. We thank you for life, health, and strength. We pray as we open your word uh, this evening that you will give us wisdom to navigate uh, your thoughts, to understand your, your thinking as we approach Romans and other passages that may arise. We thank you for those who have joined us, and we pray for wisdom as we open your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Amen. So here we are. Uh, for our Bible study, we are normally studying in uh, Romans chapter 9. Uh, you should have notes uh, I sent out. And Romans 9, we're probably in the second half of what we left off on uh, last week. We'll pick up to where we left off. Um, but before we do, we're just going to pause to see if there are any thoughts, questions, anything uh, is on your mind. We'll continue. Uh, the floor is open. Yeah, I have a thought based on um, the command that we see very often is to love one another. And in this time, I found one of the in, in one of the references you had in the lessons for tonight. You referred to First John chapter 3, and I was taking a look at that, um, I didn't have a chance to read through all of it, but I am seeing that familiar phrase, you know, love one another just as he has commanded us, in First John 3, 23, mm -hmm. and, um, or even First John 3, 11, uh, for this is a message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, and I was just thinking about how, how much contrast or um, misapplication, I'm not sure what the right word is, um, that a lot of people, you know, talking about loving one another as if that means um, the same thing as the fruit of the Spirit. So in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it talks about things like, you know, being kind and patient and, um, and people talk about those things as meaning like being a, a an application of loving one another. So, and and I know that we've looked at it, especially on John 14, when we went through that in detail. We're more um, we started asking that question. Well, Christ said to love each other as He has loved us. Well, how has He loved us? How has the Father loved Him? And we're supposed to love each other the same way, through um, kindness and patience and, and joy and those sort of things, or is there something else? And we can see how neatly the you know, motivation for the plan fits in there. Um, but what do we do with the fruits of the Spirit in, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23? And does that also um, fit in with loving one another? I think I think it does. Yeah. If you go to uh, Galatians, 
five. I'm just headed there. Yeah, I think what we see, and this is something I discovered a while ago about how the spirit works. And um, <clears throat> I haven't really written too much about it, maybe briefly, but uh, so the things that we read here about the works of the spirit are things where the people uh, needed guidance in those specific areas. So for, in, for instance, if you, if you go back to 515, right, where it's, this is before he gets to those verses, this is what he says. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. If you go to the end of those verses, this is what it says. Is that rain? Oh no. Hold on. Hold on. If you go to the end of those verses, it says, let us not be conceited, provoking and envying each other. So wrapped around those verses is the negative things that were going on in uh, Galatia, at the Galatians church. You could, you could see that they had problems. So when you see what the Spirit does, it, it counters what issues there was at that church. So it says, uh, and, and not only the principle of uh, how the Spirit works, it, he, he, the, the fruit of the Spirit is those things. But it's more. It's more than just uh, the list of things that are here. Just like you would say, you know, you could say, well, how, what gifts are there? Uh, and then people would say, well, there's the gift, and they name all the gifts that are listed. Uh, but does that mean that that's the only thing the Holy Spirit will enable us? Uh, I think there are more things. He does whatever is needed. I don't think it's just, okay, he, he gives a gift, this particular gift, and if you don't have that one, there's there's no variations, but then you got another one over here. I think it's it's varied. The spirit is more fluid than that. And so when you see all these things that are happening here, the spirit addresses things that were happening to the Galatians. So, so let's say, um, so I say, live by, uh, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not you you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The ex notice the mention of the law because of the, the problems that the Galatians had. The acts of the flesh are obvious: sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, listen to this, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he goes on and talks about the fruit of the Spirit. is love, joy, peace, forbearance. Why do we need forbearance or patience? Because of the stress and the strain that those Galatians were under. Kindness. Well, 
There was a general rudeness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. So it's almost just like reading 1 Corinthians 13. When you see 1 Corinthians 13, you see about love. Where he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels and I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can phantom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I do not have faith, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body to to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So watch this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is... It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. So these are all things that the Corinthians needed. So in the explanation of love, that is how the Holy Spirit is able to uh, produce unity in the church and uh, fellowship with each each other uh, there's another scripture in Romans just to, to lead you to because even if we practice you know look those things up in the in Webster's dictionary and try to practice them that's not exactly what, what how we are to produce love so this is in Romans chapter 5 so he talks about it from this standpoint Five, five, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So whatever we think about love, even though those gracious things may happen for us as a result of love, it is a divine enablement. God, the Holy Spirit, has to shed that love abroad in our heart. That, that is not love that is produced, humanly speaking. It is divine. That's why it says in, in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. What's the fruit? The result of the Spirit. Here, the result of the Spirit is love. So, so there's, that's a basic understanding of love, that it comes from God. It's not something manufactured that we can muster it is something that flows through us as we are being influenced by the spirit and it deals with issues it's real it's on the ground battlefield uh, information that literally strikes at those things that cause discord and dissensions and factions and fighting and quarreling and on and on and there's other uh, things that, that i could mention too but so love does have those qualities where it does uh, quell all of those uh, things that cause discord. But it is it is not uh, something we can manufacture. Um, even though it, we can look at those things and think, oh, I know what patience is, or I know what what forbearance is, or uh, I know what factions are. But but doesn't mean that we have the power to be able to do it. 
So I'll pause because I'm not sure if I'm on the same, if I'm thinking uh, along the lines you are. Yeah, the only thing I would want to add into that is what I was relating, uh, trying to relate in the beginning by talking about John 14 as well, that when uh, Christ talks about loving one another as he has loved us or as, or as the Father has loved him, we're talking about the motivation for God's eternal plan. So there is there is a, a context for um for that love and, and in the other in the other areas in Galatians and First Corinthians thirteen and Romans five, it it's not within that context. It, it's uh, neither implicit or explicit that it's about God's plan. Well, I would say the whole thing is about God's plan. Whenever we're talking about conduct, <laughs> so, so, but, but yeah. to, to your point, more explicitly in Romans, not Romans, but John, as you mentioned, fifteen. So the love there is given some definition, right? It we it talks about us loving God. It talks about God loving us, and Jesus breaks it down and says, "The Father loves love me." So. Uh, I I want you to, I love you and then he says I want you to love each other. So now we have to understand that in the context of what he's saying and what he's saying and you you correctly had it which is it in terms of the plan. The Father loved Christ. What did that mean? Uh, it meant he put Christ in he chose Christ and gave him this tremendous responsibility of how everything rests on his shoulders. Christ loves him back. What does that mean? It means that, oh, Christ says, well, then if you love me the way you love me, then I, my love, reciprocal love toward you will be obedience toward everything you say to do. Everything you want me to do, I will do. That's, so then Christ says, I want you. He says, now I've chosen you. You, you. you are here because of me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. So I want you, I love you, just like the Father loved me, so I love you. So what does that mean? That means we are put in service in the world, right? Christ said, I'm, just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. That's John 17. So, so the fact that we're here, Christ has put a tremendous responsibility, a calling on our lives. What is our response to him? Our response to him is, love. I love you. I, you are the Lord. I want to do whatever you say do while I'm here. But I, I'm here to do your will, not mine, and so forth and so on. So then for, it goes in a step further and says, okay, now love each other. So now we love each other. How, how do we interpret that? So knowing that we are all under that obligation and we're all in the battle down here together, that we are to be devoted to one another, that we should honor each other as uh, God would honor us, that we were to prefer one another, those of us who are believers. I mean, we're, we're here in the world. There's literally no other, I mean, it's, like it says in uh, 1 John 5, it says, we are in the world and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And he's referring to Satan. But we are the children of God that are here. Just imagine if we were to look at the whole world and think, okay, it could be divided up into two camps. <clears throat> There's the camp of believers who are God's children in this world. And there's the, the rest of the world. It doesn't matter what their race is, what their 
religion is, what, what they think, if they don't believe in God, doesn't matter. They're all in that camp. So that so so we are in the world and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So how should we think about each other? We have to love each other, trust each other, prefer one another, be devoted to one another. I could go on. Uh, support one another. I mean, so those are that's how love our love is expressed toward one another. And then we also see those scriptures that we already came across, which deal with uh, the issues that were happening in the church, where the, the church was snooty. They had Jews in it, and the Jews didn't like the Gentiles. And the Gentiles said, oh yeah, well, we don't like you either. And then on and on, back and forth, there was fighting, literal fighting. I'm talking about where people's fists came out, fighting in the church. And all that was going on, and so God had uh, to talk about unity. All of us, the most important thing is if we're going to represent Christ here in this world, we need unity. So this is what we saw in chapter 4, where it says, Be completely, verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You know what I'd like to say here? when I read these verses is we all came from somewhere. Doesn't mean we all came from the same place, but there's a unifying call to why we're here and what we're doing here. And that is expressed by Paul here, how there were factions, there were all kinds of troubles and problems in the early church. It was not harmonious as a lot of people paint it. It was tough. It was racism. It was people fighting, uh, you know, discrimination. I could, uh, people hated one another. So he, he is now dealing with the things that we have unity around, the fact that we're believers and we're sons. We're in, those who are in Christ are new creation. Uh, and, you know, there's one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. One God the Father who is uh, all who is in all of us, um, and and we should have uh, that sort of love among each other. Did you have a comment? Yeah, that it, it, it's funny that you brought that up um, because I was uh, I was looking more. My question stems around not so much as relating to each other, but in functioning through the spirit and in trying to control or trying to um, um, bring the, the flesh under subjection. Mm -hmm. Like your own personal battle with flesh and the spirit. And, 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 in, and I, this question comes from something someone asked me about, um, I think it, it was, it is Galatians. Mm -hmm. It started with Galatians five sixteen through 17. Yeah. And the flesh's desires, and then they used um, Romans 8, 6 to kind of underline that point that we should function with, under the spirit and opposed to functioning um, without the spirit and we are um, fall yeah. victim to, you know, the desires of the flesh. flesh. Uh 
Right. Okay. So the, the person that I was speaking with said they used to believe it, but they don't believe it anymore. So my question, I didn't talk to them. They just sent me a text message. Mm -hmm. You know, it's Gigi. She, mm -hmm. So she sent me a text message about it and asked me if I still agreed with it. And I said, well, perhaps there's a misunderstanding that you have when you originally agreed with it because the Bible verse hasn't changed. It still has the same meaning. So perhaps her, 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 what, she, the, what she understands it to mean, the flesh battling the spirit, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is, is where her, her, her issue is. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, well, that is certainly, like you said, hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is still... True, but here's the thing about it. Um, what We are not called upon to fight the sin nature. Remember, the sin nature is already dead. Uh, when we say dead, it is no, no longer who we are anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, so that reality has to sink in and become part of our no, thinking, mm -hmm. right? Our thinking. So yes, beliefs begin with, but then it has to integrate into a, our thinking. So we don't see ourselves as what we were anymore. Mm -hmm. But then, the Spirit, as we walk in, the, in, the, in truth or walk in the light, the Spirit is the, is the one who takes up the battle against the sin nature. That's what it says here in Galatians. I don't know if people are reading it that way, but it says, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not able to do whatever you want. So there's a, a battle going on. But you can't fight the battle. The spirit is said to the one who is fighting the battle. Mm -hmm. Right? These are contrary. So you can't you're in the middle. But if you here, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law, right? Um, and and it goes on. No, here, where does it say what I'm thinking of here? Yeah. Yeah, so so if you actually it's 16. So I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So this is how uh you're supposed to solve it. Mm -hmm. Right? By walking by the spirit. Now when you walk by the spirit, the spirit maintains control over the flesh on your behalf. Mm -hmm. But, so where are you? Your motivation is to walk in, in the Spirit. Well, that means to be under the influence of the Spirit. And, and that motivation e even comes from love, where we've been talking about love is a motivation. But we, we want to obey God's will. We want to do follow His uh, requirements for our lives here. We recognize we are not our own, all those things. And we want to grow in grace. We want to come to know God. And all those desires, that's walking by means of the Spirit. We want to grow up in Christ. And not according to the law, but according to the new age information that we have. Where God has given us to walk according to. So living by the Spirit, it says we will definitely not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, we don't have to worry about the flesh if we're walking by the Spirit. Mm -hmm. So what happens if we're walking by the Spirit is we're doing all we know to, to do God's will. It doesn't mean that we're perfectly without sin. Mm -hmm. 
but it means that our motivation is pure and we're walking because we want to do what's right. We want to fulfill uh, God's will. And what happens as a result of that? The blood of his son cleanses us from sin. We have fellowship one with another. And, and that's all God requires of us so that we don't try to take on the whole sin nature and say, oh, well, I'm going to root out every sin that's in me. I, I'm going to fight. Well, yeah, well, you could do that, but you won't succeed. Right. Because the sin nature is more powerful than you. The Holy Spirit is more powerful than the sin nature, but he works through your motivation. So if your motivation is wrong, mm -hmm. for instance, I know people talk about, well, if you sin, confess it. Well, if your motivation is wrong, what's the use in confessing it? Right? You, you, you're not interested in growing in grace. That's what confession of sin and, and walking in truth is about. Growing up, coming to know him, having the pure motive. To, but if you don't have that motive, then those things aren't going to help you. Mm -hmm. right? That's not, those, they won't benefit you. So before you even put one front foot in front of the other, you just have to allow God to help you to want to do what is good and what is right, what he considers walking in the light as he is in the light. Once you under, and, and you work that out and you say, okay, I do want to know you, God. I do want to come to the knowledge of the truth. I do want to uh, uh, be an ambassador for you. All the things that he is in trying to work with you and understanding, he will work out the rest. All you have to do is say, well, this is my motivation. And once God has your attention, that's all he needs. That's it. He doesn't really need anything else. He can handle whatever sins you're committing, whatever, however they may look. He, he said, don't even worry about it. Of course, Christ paid for every sin. So it's not even an issue with God. It's about motivation. So I pause. Uh, and you tell me if I'm... Well, I'm, I'm clear on what you said. For me, I'm not sure about... Um... Others? Okay, well, other thoughts out there? I'm good. Thank you for that very thorough discussion. Thanks for the question. Yeah, thank you, Carol, for adding on to that. Yeah. It was funny. I That was the very, that area that you hit was just where I was going. I You actually spoke up faster than I did. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So well, good. It, it all kind of connected. And then love ultimately is the motivation. Yes, yes, that's the motivation that we have. And, of course, that has to be built, right? Mm -hmm. We have to work with God so that we get to the place where we do have that motivation, the right, proper motivation. We're not doing it just to impress people or... or that's a fly? Mm-hmm, I saw gosh. it. gosh. Sorry, I saw it. I you know how much I like flies. Here, use this book. Hold up, no. You got it, huh? I don't play. Mm. Gosh. Well, for you on the record land here, just uh, stand by. <laughs> we, okay. Yeah, we have to work on that. <sighs> I was freaked out here by a fly. I don't know how a fly got up here. In any case, we're continuing. Mm -hmm where we left off and uh, so we're going to head to Romans 
and uh, stand by. Thank you guys for the questions. Romans chapter 9. So, we're going to get right to it. Um, as you know, we are in the middle of verses 18 and 19. This is what 18 and 19 says. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So you have notes. In your notes, you might say we learned about Pharaoh in the context. True, but we learned more about God. Knowing how God worked to accomplish his purposes is valuable to us. We already know that Israel was born out of God's will and power. And we are seeing how God used every means available to him. We would not think God would use Pharaoh or Joseph's brothers or even Judas. But that is exactly what we see. So we, we covered a, a lot of this. And if we tried to cover it again, we probably would ne not get through what we wanted to. And that is point number three. So there are some key things here. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And uh, we covered that phrase. And uh, we understood how with Moses, remember, look at point D. Recall, this is God's response to Moses' question. Not, now show me your glory. Remember, that's what Moses said in Exodus thirty-three eighteen. Essentially, God's answer was, no, Moses, I'm not going to show you who I am exactly. I'm not going to reveal my, my hand to you, my heart. And, but, and we noted that we are the recipients of Moses' question. And it's interesting, as I thought. I said, you know, even though we have that as a benefit, not a lot of people are asking that question uh, of God. But that is literally... The question that Moses was asking that we should be asking and have so so yes we have that's available to us we are in the position of where Moses was denied access and this is what it meant right there when God says I will have mercy on whom I have mercy he told Moses that when Moses asked the question meaning I will choose whoever I want to choose for that uh, for that glory Moses, not you. And so then we went into two. He heart and he hardens whomever he wills. So hardening the heart, we we took some time, and I don't know that we're going to be able to repeat going through all those scriptures. But we took time to understand how hardening is used in scripture. So that helped us understand that Pharaoh did not, God did not manipulate Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh did, wasn't, he was of the opinion that he wasn't going to change his mind. And whenever he did relent and, and say, okay, 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 enough, uncle, then, then God let, uh, he, he eased up on the plagues, he stopped it. And then Pharaoh was like, no, I was, I, I'm not letting the people go. But God was intent. Remember, this is part of, and this kind of goes along with the Romans theme that we've been covering. What have we been saying? We've been saying that 
God is pointing out to Israel that let me show you how I formed the nation Israel. I'm sovereign. I could do what I want. I've demonstrated that uh, throughout your history, throughout the, the formation of the nation Israel. That's what that was about. And, and I can choose the church if I want to. You can't tell me who to choose and who not to choose. So that was what it was all about. So, um, and, and so we, we, we covered that whole thing. God showed up and confronted Pharaoh. And that demanded that Pharaoh make a decision. This is point E. And what was it around? Let my people go. Knowing that that would, uh, would harden Pharaoh's heart against God's will. So we, God knew that that was going to be the case. He said it before even Moses and Aaron and, uh, had anything, had gone to Pharaoh or said anything to Pharaoh. God already told him. He said, listen, Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. But basically, God asking Pharaoh that question to let, people, let his people go, Pharaoh had to make a decision. And Pharaoh's heart was hard against God. So... Then we got to point number three, and that's where we left off. Point three says, <clears throat> you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So the first thought is, remember, God does not have to manipulate anyone's will. We are already resistant from birth. God has plenty of opportunity to show his will and power if he wanted to, in our resistance. And I think everybody who is here can say that they had uh, resistance. I mean, no one here probably heard the gospel and just automatically said, mm, that's it, I believe it, I'm, I'm a believer. Because in our hearts, our hearts are far from him. His thoughts are not our, th our, our thoughts. And his ways are not our ways. So I can tell you just my personally, uh, personal experience is, yeah, I, I resisted grace. I, I said, no, it can't be that way. And in fact, the same thing the Jews had. I said, it's not even reasonable that God would give us salvation and it would be absolutely free. That you don't have to do anything. And you don't even have to be obedient. You don't have to do his will. Uh, you don't have to listen to what he says. God's going to give you salvation. And, you know, it just did not make sense to me, logically. And I fell into false gospels. I did all that. I understand that. But then God showed me grace. And he showed me that, yeah, that's what his word was saying as well. That is his, his position. And once I saw it, man, I saw it. And I didn't even see it the first time. It took many times. But thank, thank God I did not continue to resist it's something in me said look at the word is is that what it's saying is it is it really what it's saying something in me and i had to say it was humility said okay god tell me what what do you want even and now if i believe what you say god is going to, to totally turn my theology upside down i don't even know where i would stand with my theology so God doesn't, listen, God does not manipulate anybody's will. God knows that we are already resistant the moment we're born in Adam with a sin nature. 
dead. He knows it. We're already there. There's nothing that he has to do to make us say no. We're already stuck on no. What he has to do is get us to believe. That is why we, we studied in Sunday how God the Holy Spirit is coming and he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, of sin, and he goes into it. Because we're already in the place of stubbornness, recalcitrance. We're already there. If left to our own, no one does any good. No one uh, would seek God. We're all depraved. We wouldn't, if God didn't intervene, no one would be saved. That's how locked in we were to the sin nature. So God is, he, he recognizes, he understands all of that. And he does not manipulate anyone's will. He doesn't even make people believe. He is not willing that any should perish. Not anyone. But yet, he does not go in and monkey with their free will. And you know what the testimony is? Do we know that that's true? That God is not manipulative, divisive? Is that there is a lake of fire. We know that God's not willing, willing that any should perish. And the lake of fire is testament to fact that people can have it their way. God will not force them into some salvation construct. He will not. He will let them go to the lake of fire. Let's continue. Point B. If man's hardness works in God's favor, how is man to blame? So this goes into the question, why does he, why does he still find fault? If, 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 in other words, and this is, and this is, again, how Paul is using Jewish thinking to understand uh, and and to teach us and Jews the sovereignty and the the will of God as it interacts with the free will of man. So God is sovereign, but he has also given us free will. And how does it, how does it respond? How do we, what are we to say? Because the Jews are saying that God is manipulative. Just think about what, what that question, why does he still find fault? Right, who can resist his will? So thinking about Pharaoh, that's where this question comes off of. If God is going to harden whom he wants, well, then what, and, and then all of that is for his glory, then, well, how can we be found guilty, right? So Romans 3, 5 through 8 answers uh, this question. Romans 3, let's go to it. 5 through 8. Here it is. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, isn't that what it's saying? In, in essence, he said, to Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, I knew you were going to resist me. I knew that my impression and demands upon you would harden your heart. I knew it. And so, but God is saying, I, I did this so that people would know who I am and it would be for my glory. And God did that, right? So he used Pharaoh, he used his resistance to magnify his glory. That's what he did. So this is what it says in Romans 3, 5. Because really, this is Jewish thinking, right? This is what Paul is tapping into. 
This is Paul saying, I know how they think. I know what they're going to say. And I'm going to address that too. So this is what he says. Uh, so he says, uh, uh, if our righteousness, this is, I'm back in Romans 3, 5. If our righteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath upon us? I am using a human argument. This is Paul, his aside, saying he doesn't believe that, but he's using the way people think about it. It's not, he's not really saying that that is the way it is, he's, or that he's raising this question. He is raising this question so that he can answer it. And remember, this question comes from Jewish thinking. Right? So he says, I'm using a human argument. Certainly not, right? So the answer to that is certainly not. And if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what should we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath upon us? Can we say that? Absolutely not. We cannot say that. If that were so, how could God judge the world? He couldn't, right? Right? How, how is he going to find people guilty when he used them for that purpose? How could he judge the world? In fact, this literally is how I would answer a Calvinist, right? a Reformed person. Because their thought is, hey, um, God is the one who chooses people for salvation. So tr tr truly, God does manipulate his, the person's will, and he makes people believers, even though it is not about what they thought. In other words, per a person just walking down the street one day, and boom, they're, re they're regenerated. That's how uh, Calvinists say it. The person is regenerated. God makes them alive. He saves them without their will involved. So God manipulates people. And then he leaves other people. He doesn't do this for everybody. Some people, he just leaves in what they call just condemnation. Uh, and, and so I'd ask him, well, what is judgment for then? That's what I, I would say to them. What do you, why, why is God judging people? What is he going to tell the people when he goes to them in judgment? He says, what? What are the people going to say? I was born this way. I have a sin nature. I just did what was natural to me. And now I'm condemned forever in the lake of fire. How can God judge somebody? And what's the purpose of that? Of him judging somebody? What is God going to tell them? You're a, you're a sinner. Well, he knows that. <laughs> what, what opportunity did they have? You gave them life, but then you gave them a sin nature. So how could he judge them? Based on what? And that's, that's literally what uh, this is. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? That's verse 6. And I'd say the same thing. If God was manipulative, then no, he couldn't judge the world. But he does judge the world. And we are responsible for our salvation. It's in, it's, it's in our hands, just like uh, John 3.18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It's because of that, and that's him. It didn't say because God did not choose him. It says because he did not believe. Right? So 
So the, the uh, responsibility is upon our shoulders. Let's keep going. Verse 7. Uh, what well, we saw. Yeah, verse 7. So someone might argue if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? In other words, I helped you, God. I worked for you. My, my falsehood enhances your truthfulness, so increases your glory. So why am I still condemned as a sinner? So these are thoughts that the Jewish people would throw up to God. Right? This is what they would come back with. Paul is answering it. And what does he say in verse 8? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that, uh, that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. In other words, they have twisted the thing around so much that it doesn't even make any sense anymore. So, and, and for us, these verses probably don't make a lot of sense anyway. We would never say these things to God because uh, this is just not the way we think about things. But it's good for us to understand that and, and understand the context. The verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. And that's what the Jews were contending, that they have an advantage with God. They got the law. They're obeying the law. Right? Not at all, for we have already made the charge. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And then he goes on, no one's righteous, no one understands, there is no one who seeks God. We all, all of us have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So, back to Romans 9 in our notes. Right? This, this helps us understand, right? If man's hardness works in God's favor, how is, how is man to blame? That's really what they're asking. How can God find fault? And God is answering that by saying, that his, really his hardness is not uh, on God's part. This person was disposed, deposed this way, disposed to this hardness anyway. And God only used that for his glory. Now, in, in one case, what you could say about this is that Pharaoh had more chance to believe, probably, than anybody ever. And God demonstrated his awesome power, his glory, right in front of this man. And this Pharaoh could have easily said, oh, I see it. I'm humbled by this. I, I, but no, no, he did not. So Pharaoh had more opportunity to see the miraculous power of the sovereign God and see his will than anybody. But yet Pharaoh still chose not to believe. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. We saw that in scripture. So, point C, uh, this line of reasoning uh, from Jewish thinking does not hold water. Not for God's way of salvation or his eternal purpose. So we're just going back to Romans 9 and we're seeing that there were two things that um, the Jews had. Two problems. And one was they didn't like God's way of salvation. They wanted it to be by works. In fact, there's a lot of people today that are in that same boat. They wanted to earn their righteousness before God by keeping the law. And they spurned grace. 
They hated the word grace. They hated God's way of salvation. They wanted to change it. They said, hold, hold on, God. We're your chosen people. You formed our nation. So we ought to ha just have a pass when it comes to salvation. But God couldn't do that because of his righteousness. And, and then his eternal purpose. Right? His eternal purpose was to bring many sons into glory. Right? And Israel was a component part of that. And God is not going to change his eternal purpose for anybody because they don't like it. God chose the church, and that's the end of the story. Israel didn't, they said, I don't like that. So here is where you have to separate yourself from Jewish reasoning, Jewish thinking. It does not hold water. And a couple of scriptures to help us understand that we are not Jews and how we function in any way. So I'm going to just turn to a couple. Galatians 2.14. I don't think we ever looked at this in the way, in this way before. Galatians 2.14. This is where Peter was eating with the Gentiles. And then when he saw the Jews coming on the horizon, he got up real quick and moved across, moved to where the Jews ate. Right? And this is, Paul saw this and even Barnabas was led astray by some of this hypocrisy that Peter had. So Paul called them on it. And this is, this is verse 13. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Verse 214. When I saw, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. So Peter knew better. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now notice, <laughs> Jewish customs, Jewish ways of living. Now how, what was, what's a Jewish custom? What's a Jewish way of living? The law. And, and in particular... What, what is that issue here? The dietary laws. And what is Paul saying? He's saying, we're not under those. And why are you forcing uh, this upon, you're making a point that these people should follow. Notice what he calls it, Jewish customs, Jewish ways of living. If you look up the Greek word, that's what it is, Jewish ways of living. And what, is Jew, what are Jewish ways of living? The law. So Peter got straightened out by the Apostle Paul because he was trying to... Peter said, oh man, I'm a... He knew he was eating with the Gentiles already, so he knew it was okay. But he caved into the pressure of the Jews. So one thing I can tell you from this verse is we don't have to follow Jewish customs. We don't have to listen to Jewish customs. And look, Jews are not the people of God right now. Remember, the only people of God on the earth right now are, is, would be the church. That's it. If you're a Gentile, that means you're unsaved. If you're a Jew, that means you're unsaved. If you're in the church, you've come through the door of salvation, and now you're in the church. So, following Jewish customs keeping the Mosaic law. We're not under the law. We don't have to keep the law. 
We don't have to follow Jewish customs. Uh, whether it's dietary, whatever Jewish customs were, those are not something that God has uh, levied upon the church. It's not it. So hopefully people would understand that, but here it is with dietary restrictions. I can't tell you. I grew up with those things hanging over my head that I had to obey certain laws, dietary laws, that were found in the Old Testament. All of that was wrong, according to the scripture we have in front of us. And then there's Titus 1.14. Let's look at that. Um, Titus 1.14. Listen to this one. Uh, let's see, verse, start at verse 13. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay, listen to this, will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to merely human commands of those who reject the truth. Jewish myths. And I can tell you there's a lot of Jewish myths and stories and they spin these stories and Gentiles are all wide-eyed and Paul is saying, look, don't worry about none of that. Listen, if this people turn their back on Christ, and Christ is the light of the world, where are they walking now? They turn their backs on Christ. They're walking in darkness. There's nothing that they have that we can benefit from when it comes to growing in grace, and especially in this age, which is led by God the Holy Spirit, where he has given us the new life, things that eyes haven't seen. This was hidden from Israel. Anyway, it's not like they have some experience in, in understanding our way of life. They don't. So we are not to follow Jewish customs, and that would include the law. Remember, Jewish customs were given to them by God. We're not saying Jewish customs are bad. They're just not for us in this particular time. They're not for us. And then what happens with these stories, and, and I was telling you how some in Jewish stories, uh, we were talking about the king of Nineveh and Jonah and, and how uh, people were saying, and this is the Jewish fables and customs and stories that they come up with. Some of them are myths. Some of them may be true, but they have gotten a lot of them. And they're saying that the Pharaoh didn't die in the, in the Red Sea, but he later migrated to Nineveh, and he was the king of Nineveh, and all this. But there is no, nothing in the word that substantiates this. It's all folklore and all kinds of different things that they come up with. And it's not in the word of God. In fact, the word of God, I pointed it out, says something different. It says, no, Pharaoh did drown in the Red Sea, and him and his army drowned in the Red Sea. Any case, let's keep going. Point D, why does he still find fault? So this is the question that we're dealing with because, and here's the reason why he can find fault, because he's righteous and he cannot be otherwise. It, literally, God cannot change. It doesn't matter if it's Old Testament to the Jew or to the New Testament. It doesn't matter. His righteousness is the same standard Regardless, when it comes to salvation, you, you, it is all about God's righteousness. And he separated himself from us 
because of his righteousness. The bad news is a result of God's righteousness. We have to be separated from God. And God cannot accept relative righteousness. Right? And so, so not only does he, he can't do it, and he has provided a way of righteousness which was rejected by the Jew. So, so if, if the Jew had the responsibility to reject God's way of making them righteous, righteous then they are then held responsible. He can find fault and he can judge. Like uh, I have a couple of scriptures here, uh, Romans 3, 9, and 10, which we read. There's none righteous, not even one. Uh, are we Jews any better? Absolutely not. All are under sin. He makes the point. And then in Romans 10, 1 through 3, he says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may they might be saved. They you know, have a zeal of God, but it is not according to knowledge. They sought uh, to get God's righteousness by keeping the law, and it was all wrong. So, yes, he still finds fault. And it doesn't matter, right, what the Jewish thinking would throw into a, a monkey wrench. It doesn't, doesn't matter. God still will judge the Jew. They will be lost if they don't put their faith in Christ, just like anybody else. Point E. So let's review this parable, right? And, and this is just a thought. We'll quickly go through Matthew 21 through 16. Let's look at it. Um, Matthew 20. You know this parable, but uh, we'll, we'll go through it quickly. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers. It's Matthew 21. For his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into the vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also... Go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon, about three in the afternoon, and did, did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why, are you, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? They answered, uh, because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, you know how this is coming. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Notice he pays the last ones first, right? The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So, when those who came were who who were hired first, they expected to receive more. I guess they were thinking, well, they got in the areas we've been working all day, so they expected to see more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. And though these who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. And this is where I wanted to really get it here, right? But he answered one of them. I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? 
take your pay and go. And this is it right here. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. <clears throat> Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. So notice, God can do what he wants. Look, this parable is literally speaking to what we've been talking about in Romans 9. About God's sovereignty. Israel's complaining that, hey, you, you can't choose Gentiles. You can't tell us, you know, that they're going to be in the same body as us. You, you can't elect them and say they're foreknown. We're the ones foreknown. You can't do it. Thou. We call thou. And God is literally saying, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own eternal purpose? Or he says with his own money, but with his eternal purpose? Can't he choose who he wants for his eternal purpose? Is, doesn't he have the right to do that? And the answer is yes, he does. He could do that. He's exercising his sovereignty. Those Jews have crossed the line by asking this question, this question that bears on the sovereignty of God. So, and then Jonah 4.2. Remember what happened with Jonah. Um, so, the interesting thing was, Jonah did not want to go to, to Nineveh to preach. He went the other way to Tarshish and ran from this responsibility. And this is what eventually came down to, because when God turned him around and made him go and preach, they all repented and, and sackcloth and they turned to God. And God did not destroy Nineveh. And believe it or not, Jonah was mad. Jonah wanted them to be destroyed. So verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you, were a, you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger. And abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And the reason why God relented here is he knew, the reason he wanted Jonah to go, because he knew that the Ninevites were going to turn around and repent. He knew that. Jonah did not want God to, to do that. He wanted God to destroy him. He hated the Ninevites. He didn't want to go preach to them any good news. So notice, I like what Jonah said, I knew you were gracious and compassionate. And, and literally, that's what the Jews ought to know about who God is. He's gracious, he's compassionate, he, he, he wants everybody to be saved. And their views about who God was, was wrong. It was wrong. Point F, for who can resist his will? And, and the question is in our context there, so in our verse. So who can? I will tell you who can. Angels, man, but it does not turn out the way they think. And, that, and I have Lake of Fire here. Well, Lake of Fire is testimony to the fact that man can resist God's will. Angels can resist God's will. So the question is wrong thinking, 
Right. It's the Jewish way of thinking that, you know, salvation is by works. It's the Jewish way of thinking that, God, you don't have the right to change. We're the ones who uh, are foreknown, predestined, justify, all that. You don't have a right to change. So that's where it all uh, came, came to, to land, that the lake of fire is the testimony to those who have exercised their volition and has spurned God's free offer of grace. And that's just one side of where the Jews failed in understanding. They thought they had a pass. But no, their salvation was in their, on, on their shoulders. And they had to choose and allow the Holy Spirit to lead them to Christ. And they refused. They resisted. And then secondarily, our context is God is sovereign. You can't tell him what, what he can and cannot do. You don't even know the plan. In fact, the plan was hidden from Jews. And God did this purposely because it did not pertain to them. So he didn't put it like, okay, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to have a church and this is going to be the properties. They're not going to be under it all. No, he hid this from them completely. Point G. Recall, the Jews had two major issues, and I just actually went through this point. God's way of salvation and his sovereign will. So those are the two things, remember, keep those in mind, and remember what God's plan was. He wanted to show the Jews that it was grace. That's how he solved that. And then he wanted to show the Jews that, no, he can choose whoever he wants because he's sovereign. He could do whatever he wants. He could suspend Israel, call out those many sons into glory, <clears throat> and then resume Israel if he wants to. And that's exactly what he is doing right now. Point H, and we're closing. In context, no one can prevent God's will. Listen, for instance, in either case, it is God's will that no one perish, and he has offered the only way of salvation through the purpose through, through Christ and it the way of salvation is grace no one can change that will and if somebody tries to change it or decide <clears throat> decides that they don't want to abide by that you know where they end up in the lake of fire at the end of time at the end of human history so you cannot, no, you cannot change God's will when it comes to salvation. And God's eternal purpose is the reality. It will most certainly come to pass. You cannot change that either. Nothing you can do. What if you don't like it? Well, it doesn't matter. The reality is that we're here because God created all things because he wanted to bring many sons into glory. That's why all things exist. That's why people are standing there and shaking their head from side to side saying, no, it's not. Because God wanted to bring many sons into glory. They can't change that reality by the way they think. So it will most, most certainly come to pass. Otherwise, we would not be here. God would not have created all things in the first place. Because this is the reason. The fact that this is the very hub, the very eternal purpose of God uh, is telling 
when we think about the Jews objecting to it, they, there's nothing they can do to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. No persecution, no hardship, no famine, no danger of sword, none of those things can stop or thwart God's eternal purposes for what he has chosen us to. So we're going to have to close, but we will continue in this context next week. Next week we will dig into verse 20. So verse 20 reads, let's just read it. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall the thing formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? We'll, we'll d- dig into that verse next week. Let's bow our heads as we close. Thank you, Father. We're privileged to have our focus directed by you and by God the Holy Spirit. We thank you for Christ, who is our Lord. He is everything to us. Uh, in him, we, we have everything, all the treasures of wisdom knowledge we have the fullness of deity we have uh, we are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way we thank you for the position you have chosen us to and we will forever be grateful as we do our best here on earth to allow the spirit to lead and guide us into all truth we thank you for those who are here in this study we pray that the study will continue to go far uh, into the world where others will also hear it. And we pray that uh, this will be a blessing and of understanding to them as well. All these things we ask in the, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.